Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to episode 111 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago, I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. On this episode, I'm joined by modernist writer David Pottinger, one of the fellas behind Move On Up, a modernist-inspired blog, and he's the young fellow who interviewed Paul Weller for the jam documentary about the young idea. Looking forward to this one. So let's get into it. David Pottinger, thanks for joining me. No worries, mate. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Lovely to have you on. Um, let's kick off. I want to take you back to being six years old. You're on holiday in Spain and you're hearing the jam for the first time. It's sort of those early childhood sort of memories and things that, you know, you, you shouldn't remember, but you somehow you somehow do. And they're, they're quite significant. The jam and, and music of, of that ilk and that that era were always sort of subconsciously playing throughout my life in those early days. I remember places like Mallorca and my dad would have a CD player, a portable CD player he'd bring with him and he'd have like the albums just in one of those, do you remember those mad like noughties, late nineties, like CD flip case things? Uh, <laughs> I yeah, remember like, going on a traveling trip to Hawaii and yeah. it was meant to be out there for three months and I yeah. burnt about 500 CDs in one of those things and never played them ever because they had the car we hired it was one of them and it was just like obviously being a little kid you, your parents always get you ready first and you know stick you in front of the tv while they're getting themselves sorted for your evening meal and stuff and they'd be like house martin's jam i'm trying to think like beautiful south style council all, all that sort of stuff um human league you know the, the decent end of the eight the 80s stuff um it was always there and i subconsciously knew and i'd i'd hum along and stuff like that but then i think at that age if somebody had have asked me outright oh do you know who the jam 
grandma I'd, I'd have been a bit like yeah if my dad had reminded me of like a, a tune of for example like that's entertainment or pretty green or something like that i'd have probably go oh yeah i know who that is you know well let's fast forward to age 11 um mm-hmm. and getting an ipod for christmas and that's where yeah. it properly started for you right yeah yeah um it was just one of them Obviously, the the two thousands, you had that advancement of iPods, and the iPod Nano was really cool. And I was like, oh, I re- these are fucking good. Like, I, I want one of these for Christmas. Do you know what I mean? And I got one, and um, my dad was like, I think he prior to um, obviously giving it, he tested. You know, parents like test it works. <laughs> like, proper, like two like two thousands. Like, you, you know, you need to make sure this thing works. He put absolute beginners on there just off. I think it was off that that best of. Do you remember that best of they did in the two thousands, where the three of them were on the front. And it was like that sort of the all mod cons target, I think, was in the background. And Absolute Beginners was on there. I remember like, he said, oh, I've only put one song on like to test it works. I, I've worked out how to do it with the, the home PC. We can put CDs. And I was like, great. I listened. I remember it was one of them them songs because obviously it was the back end of their career. And it was one of them songs that you don't really hear if you're not into the band, do you know what I mean? And, and the, the brilliant brass section at the start. And, and I remember listening to it thinking, Jesus Christ, this is sort of different to the other songs that I've heard from, say, 78, 79. This is like 80, 81. So it, it was a transitional sort of thing in my brain. I was like, shit, they're fucking good, these. There's, a, there's something a bit bit more about these. I mean, I was I was listening to, like, Arctic Monkeys' first record at the time, or uh, really early stuff. The Kooks, Franz Ferdinand, probably Kaiser Chiefs, you know, those not hard fi those naughty guitar bands that was quite unusual for a kid of that age to probably listen to. And then this sort of ticked another like door in my brain opened like another door in my brain almost I was thinking Jesus yeah there's, there's more to it than just meets the eye and, and the ear in this case your dad's obviously got clearly got good taste um, <laughs> did the mod thing come with is he a mod is he into that yeah, stuff yeah. as well he moved to Middlesbrough from Durham in 19 I think it was 77 when he was like 13 and obviously in the city he'd come out and he got that and like his older brother, my uncle, was big into like the pistols and um, sort of buzzcocks and the, the and the new wavy sort of teardrop explodes and stiff little fingers and bands like that. So there was that like in the house, them two would bounce off each other with music because my grandparents were big into like classical music and they were both classically trained with piano and, and flute and things like that. So they were never into the music of the time. And then it got to like obviously with with a lot of people of my dad's generation, it got to like seventy nine. And obviously it blew up, didn't it? That was the that was the thing, like kids in parks at school and kids digging back and going back into like the, the who, the, the small faces, the kinks, the animals, you know, the 60s stuff. And he sort of, yeah, jumped on then really. He was into the music from like the jam from probably about the start of the new wave, end of punk, that sort of splice. And then, yeah, got into the, the clothes and stuff sort of when he was about 15 and in bang on about 79 yeah you mentioned that time period where you're really getting into these guitar bands as a young kid yeah. as well and, and at that point Weller's obviously a solo artist but yes. your, your route into Weller was the jam then not the style council not Weller solo it, was, it started the jam and then it expanded yeah. out right? yeah I always I always knew of his, his solo stuff because um, like you know cars at the time you'd have a CD player wouldn't you so when I was going to like football practice and stuff like that my dad would always have like the current record in the car so I remember like Days of Speed particularly well and then I remember a couple of years later like Studio 150 as well because obviously that was all um, covers and then like Illumination so I, and he, even Heliocentric and stuff like that so I, I remember like those records but yeah the jam was like the route the route in and, and then I, beca- I became like massively obsessive, like sort of really, really quickly. I, I remember buying like all five um, albums myself 
And then I remember from then there was a really good teacher at school, um, at my head of year, Mr. Cass, who was called like brilliant bloke. And he, um, he did me bootlegs. So my, my, <laughs> grand, my grand, my granddad had been like really ill. I was quite down about it because I was, I was really decently like close to him. Said pop in my office one day and I popped in and there was like live at the rainbow, a uh, live jammy done, Reading University, like 79. You know, these like mad bootlegs where they're like, you can tell they're like they've been like lifted out by a security guard or something. But I had all them and they, they worked with the iPod. So like then you had all the records, you had like extras, like the the one they released in ninety two, and then you had all the bootlegs as well. I mean, Weller would probably be a bit annoyed. I had all the bootlegs, but as a as a fan, as a kid, you just got that obsession, you got that anyway. You're like, oh, I need to hear like a live version of this, and you, you know, like dig the new breed. And extras only took you so far. You wanted like that raw live energy of those gigs that you know were generations before that you've only ever seen on like the DVDs and MTV and stuff like that. What an education! What an amazing teacher! Like, is the bootlegs you need to listen. I mean, that's the type of stuff they should teach in schools, quite frankly, right? Oh, hundred percent. I mean, it, it, a lot of the sort of um, beliefs and values from from Weller's music um, um, have always been in, instilled in me from a young age. My dad was um, a union man w- within the fire service, so and I stood on picket lines as a kid. So all, all that sat obviously that's going more obviously in, in the council, isn't it? And Red Wedge and things like that. But all all those sort of beliefs that I had growing up have always been instilled through through that music and, and those bands and, and artists really and stuff I still strongly believe in now as, as an adult you know you mentioned this obsessive nature for the music that becomes a thing for the world of mod as well then right yeah yeah 100% I mean I got the iPod in like oh six, and I think it was like 2008 I was banging to skateboard and I was big into like that late 90s like MTV skateboarding Tony Hawk sort of scene with the PlayStation games and all that because a kid growing up in Middlesbrough at that time like it was either you were into nothing you were a chav like into shitty sportswear or you were sort of into your own little thing and there was a couple of lads who BMX and skateboard and stuff so that was quite cool and it was its own little movement which was good I suppose and then yeah I remember like uh, it was one year I'd, I had some birthday money like 2014 so I've just turned like 14 I remember like the Cortina's first record come out and Liam Frey at the time was quite cool he wore like Fred Perry and John Smedley and stuff like that and my dad always wore that sort of stuff so you knew sort of what it was I remember going into TK Maxx and seeing like just, just the standard twin tip Fred Perry's they had in there they were quite unusual there was like a, the first one I ever bought was white with um, like a forest green tipping and I was like it's really nice that and it was it was too big being like five foot five and quite skinny it was too big but you tucked it in and made it sort of work you know it's that DIY punk sort of ethos I always thought of that my early really early mod days and then it snowballed from there you got in like button down shirts and you'd be on YouTube watching snippets of stuff that like Paolo Hewitt had done. I remember there, there was this documentary where he, he had shirts out on a washing line and was talking about three finger collars, you know, and doing that. I was thinking, oh, this is interesting. And it just, as a 14 year old kid as well, it's like, Jesus, this, I didn't realise all, it was all, there was this much to it. And you're still learning now. I mean, I've been into clothes and, and music now for what, bloody hell, 14 years Probably, particularly in the clothes, it's a long time. So even now, you're still picking up new bands, and you all you're always pushing it. Do you know what I mean? You never like for me, it's never standing still. I wouldn't ever like like when I was 15, I had, I had Jam Gibson shoes and like boating blazers and the revival stuff. But at 27, going on 28, you can't be knocking about in that gear anymore. So you're always you keep that ethos, that DIY punk ethos of like 
making it your own, but you always move it on. Do you see what I mean? But I was very, very, ob- yeah, obsessive from an early age. I remember a school trip to like Beamish, which is like a museum up, up like our way. I wore like brown desert trek, black jeans and a, a classic black and yellow Fred Perry and a, bl- a black Harrington jacket. And that's quite a standard look. I'd look at that and think, oh, you know, decent, but standard for like 14, 15 year old kid. And I got fucking hammered. The playground like was ruthless. And there was this one girl in my year who like, was cool and was into like indie bands like the Rakes and stuff like that. And she was like, I oh, was like Fred Perry. I was, I was like, yeah. And, and then I instantly was like, yeah, this is the right path to like be on. <laughs> now we should talk about uh, Move On Up. Yeah, you've got this obsessive nature around music and mod, yeah. the clothes and all that going yeah. on. But what inspired you to want to turn that into something that you could write about, you could share with others and this blog? I was turning 19 then like in like a month. And I remember thinking, I want to sort of contribute to the scene and and, and, and get something out there but I'm not in a band I don't really play guitar people had argued I potentially could sing in tune but I wasn't uh, you know I wasn't in a position where I could be a front man of this cool guitar band you know what I mean I was always quite good at writing I got good grades at school in, in language and literature I did them at A level and did quite well at A level as well and I always enjoyed writing it was always something that I mean I, mean, I remember being a, a real little kid and we had an assessment at primary school and I wrote about our Borough's semi-final League Cup win against Arsenal. Do you know what I mean? So I always had something in me about culture and, and writing about things that were observational. And I thought, I need to contribute somehow. I, I'm a lad from Middlesbrough. There's not really anything going on up here. There's scooter clubs, but if you don't have a scooter, you're pretty fucked, really. You can't run run behind them. I remember me and my mate, Graham, my childhood best mate, before I was going away to Benneke Seam, a music festival with loads of pals from college. And I was like, right, I want to do this. I've got an idea. I thought move on up, obviously the Curtis Mayfield track, the jam covered it. There was that link, but then move on up as in a phrase of progressionalism. So you're moving up all the time. So, and, and there wasn't anything around. There was mod culture, which is a great site, uh, but there wasn't really anything else around, particularly from kids. We were kids. Um, so I just, I just ran with it really. And I, I interviewed my good mate, Ali Sheeran, who's, who's, um, Alistair James and he, he, he was a solo artist, still is. Check him out. I interviewed him and then it just sort of snowballed and I, I thought, you know, it, it, I'm contributing here. I'm doing something. I'm adding to something that I love, you know, that I've been involved with for a couple of years. And it was never for any gain. It was never to it to earn money or anything ridiculous like that. It was always just to contribute and have a, a, a almost a solitary voice in a scene that was at the time quite men of a certain, uh, a certain vintage, shall we say. So it was nice to be a kid and contribute to something. And and it be really well received quite early on, respected because I was a bit like mm, it might get shunned, <laughs> which it could happen, but it, it didn't, which was really good. Yeah, Paul famously is called by so many publications, uh, and, and probably even his mates. I mean, I imagine some of the people on this podcast who have got Paul's number probably have them in his phone as as the mod father. I don't, but <laughs> <laughs> sadly, it's not in my phone yet. But you know, one day, fingers crossed. I've always I've always wondered if that's something he kind of. And I think maybe he he likes it more now, but I don't know if that's always been a thing that he's loved that kind of that title. I don't know. What is, what's your view on that? It's not. It's not ever something I've um, I've asked him because I always thought it was like a bit of um, like a media cringe fest, really, a bit like you know, like lazy journals that like Q or like NME. Because I, I I was I was pulling some stuff out of my dad's house the other day. I had a stack of like two hundred NMEs, and it it was like. Him and Miles Kane on the front, it was like the mod couple. And that wasn't too bad. But yeah, the, the mod father thing, yeah. I don't know, man. I think 
I think it was more when he was a solo artist in the early 2000s. You had like, you know, you had the Ordinary Boys and you had, I think, what other bands like Hard Fire and The Rifles emerging and a lot of these bands who he's always, he's always championed young people and young up and coming bands and he's always given them a platform, which is fantastic. Even right up until, you know, like tours now where he's had like, you know, he had the Spitfires, didn't he? Good mates of mine, top lads. He always gave them a pedestal to get on there, you know, touts and bands like that. And I think that's where it comes from, personally. I think I mentioned it once years ago and he said, you know, Dave, there's worse things to be called. And I was like, yeah, precisely. It could be worse. It could be better, I think. And I think he just sort of takes it with a pinch of salt, really, yeah. But clearly an icon of the, of the mod movement, right? He's somebody oh, who, who's, you know, is always pushing forward and he kind of has that, his own interpretation of that as well. But well, for Weller, from your point of view, when was, the, when was the first gig? When did you first see him live? Um, two, it was 2008 Middlesbrough Town Hall but it was like a, it was like an 18 plus gig and I was like 14 so it was one of them I sort of my, my dad was like look like, I'll get you a ticket on the the realisation that it's potentially your pocket when you wasted like you know you're probably not going to get in so him and my uncle had like gone in and I sort of like just jibbed it a little bit like, like managed to just get in it was before the days of you know scanning and like bag checking and all the sort of precautions we have to go through now in this modern world. And um, it was the 22 Dreams too, yeah. And I just sort of found my dad and just stood like right near him and managed to take the gig in, yeah, which was mega really for like a kid of that age. Because then shortly after, all gigs are like 14 plus. So it was like <laughs> that like effort I'd gone to like sort of almost jibbing it and getting in had like gone to waste. But yeah, yeah. And then I think the next time was like five years later, like 2013 at City Hall. It was just after Sonic Kicks, yeah. So, like, okay. moving on to Saturn's pattern, yeah, that in-between-ish period, yeah. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So your Weller band, your Weller Live band, is is Pilgrim, Andy Crofts, Ben had joined the band at that point, I think, maybe? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, Crofty, Godelia, Andy Lewis was on bass. Yeah, so it was it was that era, and they were always tight, they were always really good, and it was always a show. You notice how they'd take certain songs and, you know, slow them down for his voice. And that's entertainment was all, because I remember the first time I saw it, I was expert. Oh, it might be like the jam, but as a 14-year-old kid, you come to realise, oh, yeah, it's different now. It's changed. Voices, tones, you know, the era changes. So it has to it has to move with the times. And yeah, they were always brilliant. It was always a really good show, particularly around that time. You, you, you always came out thinking, fucking hell, that was good, you know. Absolutely. Now, we should talk about the summer of 2015 because this is nuts, right? <laughs> I mean, proper life-changing opportunities. Take me through how this all first started this year because this is it, crazy. It, thing, things started to get very heavy as the scouts would say in a, in a good term. <laughs> very, very heavy. Yeah, it, it was mad. It was a mad one, really. Um, Obviously, the site would be going like a couple of years. I'd sort of got some connections in London. And I was always down in London as a kid anyway. I'd get I'd get a train from like our local station at the time was like Darlington. So you could, you could get a return for like 25 quid. So you'd go down and, and buy some clothes or some records or whatever. It was always like a world of wonder, like a 15-year-old kid going into the, the capital. I'd got some connections down there. More just made some friends. So I'd met Bax. I've known Bax now, best part of 10 years. And I'd met um, Stu DeBille. They were putting on at the cockpit, obviously a place we both know very well, an event called... It was, I think it was a London modernist literary event. And um, Stuart basically rang me and said, look, Dave, I want I want you to come down and do some interviewing. You've done it on your site. I know you as a, as a lad, obviously, from really early Spitfires gigs like the year before in Middlesbrough. And he, he knew I could talk and he knew I could um, chat to people and was a 
personal sort of person. So he said, look, come down and do it. And you can interview backs. And obviously I knew backs. So it's like comfortable, you know, people I knew I was comfortable with. And I was absolutely shitting it. I remember going down on the train. We'd been, we'd been in a nightclub like until about three o'clock that morning and the train was seven o'clock. And we got on this train and the air conditioning was broken. It was the middle of February, fucking freezing and hungover. And I was like thinking, this isn't going to, this isn't going to go well. <laughs> I haven't prepared well at all. And got down and it, and it went really, really well. Everybody who came up to me that day, and it was it was hundreds of people who I didn't know. Just me and Graham had, had gone down from the northeast. They were like, "Oh, like, you, you did really well!" And like it was one of our highlights of the day. You and Bax, because it was like two fellas from different eras who were bouncing off each other really well, and it, we had a real laugh. It was just a, a natural. And Bax was like, "Canal Day, we, we did well there. That was good, mate." Because it was the first event of its kind at the time. It hadn't really happened in that capacity. And then Nikki uh, Weller was on last. Um, she was the, the last person to come on and did a really good interview. I remember before her interview, I was in the in the crowd on, on the seats once I'd done mine. She showed me a picture on her phone and she'd taken of me on the stage. I said, oh, that's cool. I said, and I, I'd recognised her sort of. And I said, oh, are you Paul sister by any chance? She went, oh, yeah, nice to meet you. Little handshake and stuff. And she said, oh, yeah, I've just sent that to Paul. And I was thinking, fucking hell, hang on a minute. <laughs> It's a bit like, and she showed me, she showed me the text message. It was something like, "This young lad, he looks like you did when you were a kid." Because obviously, Paul had darker hair then, similar to me, a similar look and, and style that I was um, portraying at that time. And he put, "Oh God, yeah, that's cool, man." Something like, "Rock on, the kids," or something. You know, like always championing youth, like he always has done. And um, I remember thinking, "Fucking hell, this is mad." This, and then like, just even even just to be sort of him to knew I exist was enough for me. I think I'd sort of done what I always hoped and dreamed as a child would, you know, happen. And then it was about a month later and um, he was playing in York and I was at uni in York. He was playing the barbecue and me and my mate Stu had gone down. Nicky had like, I'd been chatting to Nicky and stuff and you'd sorted me out of like backstage and stuff. And I was thinking, fucking hell, this is a bit mad really. I sort of preempted myself thinking, right, things like this, you know, music's like, I'd been in and around bands for years. So I was like, stuff can change, stuff can alter, it might not happen. So I remember like getting the wristbands and putting some cash in the charity box and stuff as you do. Me and Stu was sort of, I was only, I was only young. I was like 20 going on 21. I was like, look, this might not happen. I was like, yeah. It potentially won't. And then I remember at the end of the gig, just we got taken at the side and then and pushed through. And and at the barbican, like the, the dressing rooms are down like a long winding corridor. There was like loads of people. I don't know how it was loads of people. I don't know if there's like a competition or something. There's loads of people. I was thinking, she's mad. And then like uh, Mark came out, who I've, I've got to know over the years, and like uh, head of security, great fella, proper class fella. And he was like, you two, um, Nicky's. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm free. And it was like everybody else was like sort of stood there. This is a bit bad. And then, like, you go into this, like, court, like narrow corridor, the dressing room just off it, and then just, well, it just wanders out. He's like, and now, fellas, all right, how are we doing? Are you, <laughs> you must be Dave. And I was like, this is, this is a bit mad, this, isn't it? And Stu, like, was a, um, like yourself, you know, like a lifelong fan, an older fellow. And Stu was like, thinking, Jesus, like, I've, I've, I've been following him all these years, and it's young David Pottinger who's, like, got me in, in here. And, um, and we were chatting in it, and it was just, it was class. It was just lovely. It was like, Obviously, you were nervous. You were you were really like thinking, God, I'm, I'm meeting someone who my dad's always looked up to, and my, my uncle and all fellas I've known of that age, you know. And I was like, Geez, this is mad. And we chatted about clothes and and, and music. And I had some like um, wool trousers on, so instantly he was like, Ah, oh, they're nice, man. Where'd you get them? And I was, you know, talking to him about them. I had like a Saturday job in Topman at the time in in like suiting, so I could get half decent trousers for like you know like decent price and stuff and uh, it was just mad and it was all we got a picture and it was all over in a sort of whirlwind 
And then I met like, um, and then Craddock and Andy Lewis and uh, Crofty and all that were out in the bit where all the people were chatting to people there. So I like got chatting to them and like um, Craddock was particularly charming, like he always is. And it was lovely to, you know, meet him for the first time and chat and stuff. And then, and then we just sort of, we went, but it was just brilliant. And then that was like March. And then a couple of months later, I got, I got, um, it was either a call or a text off Nikki. And she said, might have some work for you. And I was thinking, all right, okay, interesting. Um, she said we're doing a documentary about, about the band and we need some youth there and Paul's requested some youth and he sort of said he want he, he met you he was really impressed by meeting you he thought you're a really nice young lad he wants you involved I was thinking Jesus Christ hang on hang on a minute like things are snowballing quite quick from a from a little website me and my mate have created in my childhood bedroom at my dad's house to now potentially being on something quite quite big here and obviously it was with Sky as well with um, Bob Smeaton the director brilliant brilliant bloke Uh, Geordie as well so there's that northeast connection there and um, I remember I then had a zoom interview well similar like this with you uh, with Bob and I think it was sort of to suss out whether I could talk on camera because you can't with these things as you know Dan it's like you can't count on paying for somebody to come down to London getting them in front of a camera and fucking hell this shit that's why I do radio my friend (laughs) it's a day wasted so I I remember we did like it we did like an interview like that like this and it was, I think it was just suss out whether I was like a proper fan and stuff and I actually knew about the band but obviously I can spiel about it all day long, like not a problem. So that went really well. And then he, him and his producer, Martin, got in touch and said, right, we need you down in London. Um, I'd finished uni that summer. They'd like said, right, you need to get this train. I remember getting the train app to like change at North Allerton. The train, like something had happened and I got on, I didn't get on that train. I was thinking, fuck, fuck, fuck. And I, I, I rang like, this is like seven o'clock in the morning, like 20 year old kid thing. Oh shit, I've like proper messed up here. <laughs> I've blown it. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm, I'm done here. I rang Martin. He's like, oh, don't worry about it. Your ticket, you can get on any. So I got on the next one like twenty minutes later. I remember having like my mom, my mom, God, God bless her, um, had had made me like sandwiches for the journey to go down. And like I'm sat there, I, I can't eat these because prior to this happening, like maybe a week, Martin had rang me and said, "Look, yeah, you need to come down. Um, we'll get you a taxi. We're at St John's Wood at, at Rack Studios, where all Nod Cons was recording. Obviously, being a little historian as well with the band, I knew about." Uh, Vic Coppersmith, heaven, producing the record there and things like that. And then he he accidentally on that phone call went, oh, yeah, you'll do your bit. And then um, you'll do your bit with Paul. And I went, Paul? He went, oh, fuck. You heard him down the phone. (laughs) 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 He he was like, right, right, keep it right. Pretend you don't know. But yeah, Weller's coming down. You're doing an interview with him. And I was going, whoa, hang on. This Mm. this This has gone from like just chatting like me and you were doing now, talking about the band and the origins of me getting into it and all this, to now interviewing as a 20-year-old lad from Middlesbrough with no media, barring an A-level, qualification at all or, or, or experience, to interviewing the greatest British songwriter ever. You know, so that's why the nerves on the train down, I couldn't eat any of the sandwiches, like, had to bin them, like, like, chicken meal sandwiches, always really good, they were in the bin. And I remember just, like, going down into the studio, and, and Nikki had brought Paul and the twins were there, so, like, I, obviously I'd met the twins before at 
backstage a few months earlier. So I was, and I was doing teaching at uni. So it was like, I knew how to talk to kids. I had a little crack at the kids. And he was like, how are you doing, man? Are you all right? Should we get a cup? I was like, yeah, yeah. Cup in it. It was almost, because I'd met him before, it was like, oh, it was okay. Do you know what I mean? I wasn't like as nervous. And Paul's like one of those people who, like if, if you know him quite well, it's like just meeting an old pal. So it's like chatting to a mate. So it's not like you're not worried, you're not panicking like you would be with, you know, you see some of these like like rock stars like LG and people like that and Ashcroft. You're like, you can imagine them being a bit, oh, hang on. Like you don't know what's going to happen, but it's just dead chilled. And then I remember doing it. We sat, it obviously sat in front of the, um, the mix, the mixing desk. And I've still got that as like my Facebook like cover photo. I like, nothing's going to beat that, is it? Young, young mod kid with, interviewing Weller at 20 and sat in front of the mixing desk and I remember I think we did it in two takes as well but the questions were what Sky gave me and I remember the first one and it was like how did the band get their name and I was thinking oh, I wouldn't have asked that <laughs> I remember telling him after like oh like I didn't ask them questions. Like, Showbiz me. I know it was them. <laughs> it was like, oh, oh, cool. Like, you know, like brothers in arms type thing. Like, not a problem. <laughs> and it, and it, it went really well. And then a couple of months later, it got aired. And it was at the Ham Yard Hotel at near Piccadilly Circus. And um, I remember I met Bax and um, Snowy in, um, on Carnaby Street. And we had a quick pint in the, in the Shakespeare's head. And then we wandered around a bar, Italian. And there was like, there was me, Bax, Snowy, Eddie Pillar, Martin Freeman was there as well. So it was just like, mod euphoria as a kid you know all these cool people and we had like a coffee there and then we wandered around to where it was because i'd gone down and i didn't know where this hotel was i like it was it was where the ham yard club was it was all like built on the site i didn't have a clue it was in that area and i remember us just going and it was a big deal it was a really nice hotel and then like free drinks and all the rest of it, all that jazz and I, I paced myself i was like yeah i'm gonna be steady i'm not gonna be like on a student night out here, I'm going to be steady away, a nice, a nice cappuccino in between. And um, I remember like going in, it was like a full cinema. It was lovely, like a, a full cinema screen. I was sat with, there was me, there was um, Eddie Pillar and Martin Freeman. I remember, and they gave you like um, a gift bag, right? And it was like, you know, when the gift came out and you got the candy stripe bag mm. with the record in, it was that. And you got like the, the, about the young idea CD they'd done and like a few other bits. So that was cool anyway. Do you know what I mean? And then I remember like I'd had a few beers and I, I really needed the toilet. I was like, but my bit hadn't come on yet. So I remember <laughs> like running to the toilet, going for a week, coming back. And then Martin Freeman like tapped me on the shoulder. Dave, your bit hasn't come on yet, man. I was like, <laughs> So like all this mad stuff is going on and I remember, I remember watching it and like Mickey Flanagan was there, which was just mad. And like I remember what's the, what's the connection? I need to write this down and get him on the I podcast. Think, I think <laughs> I think Dan he was a big jam fan because um at the exhibition at Somerset House, the first big exhibition, you know the guy who was on the in-betweeners and was Simon's dad. I know you mean, yeah. He was actually, you know, when Eaton Rifles was on top of the pots, he had a couple of kids dressed as soldiers um, or something like that. He was one of them, so there was connections there, but I think Mickey Flanagan was just a massive fan. So he was there, and he, he, I said to me, I can't remember what I said. I remember like going, oh, no, no, Mickey, all right. I said, you, comedy's a bit naff, isn't it? And he went, you're a cheeky fucker, right? Yeah, you know, just stuff like that. Just mad, like 20 years old in the capital, like all this stuff going on. But yeah, it was an unbelievable experience. And then a couple of months later, the DVD came out, and Bob had really kindly put any stuff we hadn't put on the DVD on on the bonus disc, so there's loads more stuff on there of me just chatting to 
Paul Weller about the jam and various things. It was unbelievable. I've never, ever reached those heady heights ever again. Do you know what I mean? I don't think it, it gets better than that, really. It was just phenomenal. I was always really grateful for all those really nice people who, who thought of me and, and put me in that position, really. I was very privileged. It's it's probably, barring maybe getting my degree and stuff and and things like that, it's, it's probably the greatest thing I've ever done, I, I think, and still humbled by it now, you know. Well, what an amazing experience for a young lad and, uh, well, for anybody. And obviously, you know the purpose of this podcast, right? The aim of this podcast to get that interview with Mr. Weller. And I kind of think we're building up to an impossible task here. So, but, but also, I, I know the day after I've done it, assuming this happens, right? Obviously, but yeah, yeah, you know, uh, but, yeah but assuming that happens and the day after, it's, it's, I'm going to be crushed. It's like, what, well, you know, where do I go from there? You know, that, yeah, that, that's the thing for me. It was always, I always had, in my, in my head as a, as a kid, like, who would I like to interview? And he was obviously always number one. And I've interviewed some brilliant people since then, you know, like yourself, Mick Talbot, Eddie Piller, people like that over the years, Andy Lewis, you know, some really cool people. It just sort of, it's like, yeah, where, where do you go from here, really? It's like the pinnacle, isn't it, I think? There is obviously a few more people in the, in the yeah. thing, but it, it's just to get interviews with those people as well. Like you say, it, it's, it, for me, it's like you, like you do, like I do with the site. It's putting work in. It's putting effort in and it's producing something with my writing, with your podcast that, that people are going to enjoy and gain something from. Whereas at, there's a lot now, particularly in this really, really modern world, this is the modern world, pardon the pun, that, that, we're, uh, that we're living in. Uh, there's a lot now where people think they can just hash away on social media and you see it all the time daily you know, daily hashing away on social media and that's going to get them somewhere. And for me personally, our, our, our website has always been about quality, not quantity. Putting something out there that people are going to gain something from, it's going to leave them feeling, you know, refreshed or it more insightful. Like, like again, with your the, the podcast of yours I've listened to, I've always got something from it. I've enjoyed it and I've got something from it. And I, I think there needs to be more of that going on, needs to be more of a craft as opposed to people just going, oh, I'll post every day on social media and that might get me somewhere or earn me some money. We've never been about that. It's always been about putting something out there that people are going to gain something from, you know. Yeah, no, I really like that ethos because I think you're right. Yeah. It's about kind of, yeah, you, know, you want to inspire people, right? Yeah. And then they'll come back to your website and read more. And that's the same, you know, the podcast is, yeah. I want people to take so, and this will live forever. The same with the website, right? That content's there forever. Anybody can Always consume there. it. Uh, yeah. And that's a really yeah. cool thing. Then they are, I mean, obviously the exhibition, you mentioned Somerset House, yeah. um, and as a, you know, really special things, but just off the back of the latest exhibition in Brighton, another, you know, entirely new thing. I'm yeah. trying to persuade Nikki Weller to do one for Paul Weller solo. These yeah. are really special events. Great seeing all this memorabilia all this stuff yeah. right yeah I mean I, I, I've done the Brighton one I did I did the Somerset House one I was very lucky to be invited to the night before it opened and same for the Liverpool one as well and I think I love them both but I think the Somerset House one was my favourite one because it was the, the first of its kind and because it the sort of scale of it you know what Somerset House is like it's a lovely place and it was like a ticket to do Sally Craddock was on like the gate and stuff like that you know little things like that obviously Martin Freeman turned up and, and I, re I remember us all being so then he turned a few heads because he looked absolutely immaculate like he normally does obviously Weller Weller was at that one as well so it, it, was, a, it was a real big occasion and it was a really nice summery night in London as well and uh, I remember me and Billy from the Spitfires just like drinking beer and then just like eating loads of canapes and gosh, we have a cocktail. Yeah. Fuck it. God. But, but then the, 
the whole thing was just lovely because it was a almost like a celebration of the band and the people who the band has touched as well and that's what I really liked about it and I, I was lucky to go down a couple of times that summer and it was it was just fantastic just seeing like you say the, the cool little doodles in in the the school books and stuff and I remember my books at school were always adorned you know when you used to back your books with like the Who the Small Faces the Jam Style Council all you know your obvious bands in there and I remember just seeing that and thinking, you know, we're not, maybe we're not so that different after all. Everyone's come from somewhere. So it was, it was really nice. But I, I think what Nikki and the, the Nice Time Productions team have done and Den and, and everybody have done with them is fantastic. It's a real achievement and it's touched people across the, not only the country, but the world. So, you know, big up to them, really. Well, it's an amazing amount of work that's gone into those things as oh, well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, incredible, incredible. Hey, look, this has been so lovely, man. Um, as you yeah. know on the podcast, we have two questions to wrap things up. You're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be The Jam, The Star Council or Solo. What are you going to go with? Jesus Christ, that's one, isn't it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, thing is, the thing is with this, Dan, as well, it does change. Like other band, other bands, you'll have a song that, yeah, like fair enough, that's my favourite song by them, whatever. But with like the jam and stuff, because of the sort of special nature of it and them being entwined in my being from a very young age and my every fibre of my body. Oh God, jam song, I think. Um, you know what? I think I'd go with something like Fly Off All Mod Cons because it's probably the greatest love song ever written. So yeah, I think I'd go, I'd, I'd go with something like that. Because it's one of them songs that sometimes, depending on, you know, maybe you've had a few beers and you've gone back and put your headphones in, put your AirPods in and brings a little tear to your eye, man. So, yeah, I'd, prob- I'd probably go with Fly, I think, yeah? But that could potentially change, you know? The thing I always think as well is, like, what's the one that you, if you finish this chat, what's the one that you'll walk over to the stereo or you'll shout to your smart speaker or whatever and you yeah. put on? And that's a quite a good way of thinking about it because you're right, it, it, it will change tomorrow, it will be a different song, it will yeah. be a different moment. But at that yeah. moment in time, it's that one. That's a great suggestion. We've not had that one on the podcast before. In fact, I don't know that we've had anything off that album. I'm trying to think. Really? That was the that was the pinnacle for me in his yeah. the pivotal songwriting moment that turned a band into the fucking biggest band in the country almost overnight, wasn't it? And Polydor were like, oh, hang on a minute. We're not going to be harsh with them now. We're going to be all right with them, you know? Yeah, yeah. We'll keep them on. We'll keep them on the label. Keep them on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Okay, and the final question. So the purpose of this podcast is to talk to amazing people like yourself who have these connections, these memories, this love of Weller, and we weave these stories through the podcast series. But as you'll know, I gave up my radio career 10 years ago with one big regret, which was never getting to interview Mr. Weller. Fingers crossed it will happen, but that's the only reason, really, I'll be honest, it's the only reason this podcast exists. It's lovely chatting to people like yourself, but the purpose is to get the chat with Weller, all right? Let's be honest. (laughs) Yeah, you're Um, all right, you're all right. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, this is a bit fun, but you know, when's, when's Paul coming on? Um, so, <laughs> so when it happens, if it happens, what should I ask Paul? You could, you could ask him how cool I am. No, I'm joking. <laughs> if you uh, hadn't have asked all of Sky's questions that they've given him, what would your questions have been? What would you have taken in? The thing is, that was about the jam. So it was, I had to sort of, sort of 76 to 82. I couldn't really maneuver. But I think if I had to ask again, I, I would, I'm very intrigued about that. I don't think there's a lot about this. I would ask Dan something along the lines of, you know, when obviously modernism, a new decade, is it 89? And it, it was dropped, wasn't it, by Polydor? It was dropped. And then that record's only, only surfaced years later. And then there was the whole thing of like 90, 91, 92, and the, the Paul Weller moon with Max Beasley on keys and this sort of acid jazz thing coming, bit then the build up to the first record. And I read somewhere once that I think it was like, 1991 someone went if that first record hadn't come out and the movement tour hadn't done 
as well as it did because my dad saw him in the town hall at Middlesbrough like 91 and that holds like 2,000 people and there was maybe four or 500 people there and people were like, well, we're lucky to be here but this is mad, this fucking well, like what's going on? I would ask him something like, did you, did you think at that period of time that you would have this unbelievable 30, 40 year solo career when you didn't have a label? Because I'm really interested on on that, and I don't think it's ever really been touched on in the books, mm. the documentaries. I think that would be my question, man. Yeah, that's a great question. It's, yes. it's really interesting. It's re- yeah, you're absolutely right because there's that yeah. and that whole kind of self doubt that comes from that. And you hear that through some of the songs around that time when yeah, has my fire really gone out? All that yeah. kind of stuff, which must be yeah. related to that. But that must have been a you'd have thought a desperate period for somebody who loves creating music and wants to get it out into the world, you know, but who knows? It would be really scary. I mean, doing something from 14, 15, always having success. And then all of a sudden, hang on the labels, the labels fucked off the last record. You know, the band's sort of done. We've, we've gone out on a high being a, one of the biggest pop groups. I mean, I read somewhere that one of the final gigs, like, cause people were hearing that new acid house sort of like, Thing, they were like ripping up programs and stuff and I was like what the hell like this has gone a bit like it's gone a bit punk hasn't it like this is a bit weird it's got some, some kind of thing around that final style council gigs is that a myth were they yeah, yeah. But, I think I said, well, can you imagine having such an extreme reaction to any musical performance that you would rip up the program as like be I, mean, that I, angry? I, I never buy a program anyway but <laughs> I just can't. I, I just read somewhere recently. Someone, someone was like, "Oh yeah, there was ripping up programs." And you know this hazy thing of like, "Oh, were they? Weren't they?" And then some guy actually had a program or something. But yeah, apparently ripping up programs and chucking yeah. them from the balcony. You're that furious that the style counts have not played the music from their greatest hits that you know and love, and he's played this house stuff. I'm going to rip it up and storm off. Brilliant. Mad, mental. Mental. <laughs> but yeah, like. For me, unbelievable, but that show, that's testament to the, the level of creativity and the, the determined guy he is that the perfectionist in him, he will never give up. And that's why in 2022, he's still, still as relevant as he ever has been. He's not like one of these washed up artists who's touring, you know, oh, well, let's tour the greatest hits again, shall we? Let's put some more money, you know, in the hit parade. It's like, He's still relevant. He's still creating brilliant records. Fat Pop last year was a fucking triumph. Do you know what I mean? It was a record that makes you think, Jesus Christ, there's still something there and there always will be. And that's what's, for me, the legacy that he'll always have. He's always relevant forever. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, well, no, I 100% echo that. David, this has been such a joy to have you yeah, on the man. podcast, man. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. I, I really appreciate you asking me. Cheers, Dan. Thank you very much. My thanks once again to David Pottinger, another fabulous guest on the podcast. Do check out the show notes for this episode on my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. And whilst you're there, do check out my store for exclusive podcast merchandise, and you can show your support for the pod by buying a virtual coffee as well. Doing that this week. First up, Johnny Lancaster. Thumbs up, a big fan of the show. Cheers, pal. Thanks for all your support. Jem Milner, hi to you. Alex McLaughlin, cheers as always, friend. Martin Glover, greetings from the other side of the world. Great podcast. Can't wait for the big one and for the next time the great man visits our shores. Perhaps you could ask him that. Simon Cartilage, cheers for your support. Mark Iskowitz, he says, Dan, your podcast is always a highlight of my week's entertainment. Congratulations on engaging in terrific discussions with interesting people who share your wealth of Weller enthusiasm. No doubt that Paul is nearly ready to chat with you, so all the best. Well, fingers crossed for that, my friend. Vince Bicarino, keep up the good work, Dan. I've been listening from the beginning and always look forward to the new ones. 
Thanks, mate. And David Cracknell, hi to you as well. Thanks to all of you for your support. It's really appreciated. And if you want to get involved, just head to my website, grab a virtual coffee for a shout out next week or some of my official merchandise. You can also find me on social media as well. Get in touch on Twitter at WellerFanPod or on Instagram and Facebook, Paul Weller Fan Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.